Hey, we're going to spend a little time on uh, part of the series that we've been working on over the last few weeks, and our topic this morning is hope in this messy life because of all that is to come. And we're going to talk about what the future looks like and where we get the future and uh, some characteristics of your future and mine. So why don't we pray together as we start. Father, all of us find ourselves in uh, specific and unique circumstances. Different from even the person sitting next to us. And Lord, we'd like to leave this morning knowing that you are in that place with us. At the same time, we all find ourselves in common circumstances and in the common experience that is ours in being part of the human race. You came to this earth, became human, and you've been there. And we'd like to meet you in that place. It's common to all of us as well. So give us hope as we take this journey on what future looks like. In Jesus' name, amen. I've been intrigued by a couple of uh, things going on in the media in the last uh, few months. One is the movie Blindside. Blindside is a movie out in the theaters right now. It's about the life of Michael Orr. And uh, my daughter likes it. Uh, she calls it a Hallmark movie. Hallmark movies are movies that always have happy endings. And uh, she says she needs a happy ending. She turns on the Hallmark channel, and there's always a Hallmark movie. Well, Blindside is a Hallmark movie. What, what makes both of these events uh, terrific is that they're actually events that occurred. They're true stories. And Blindside is the story of Michael Orr. Michael Orr was a, a, a large, young black man growing up in the slums of Memphis. And inexplicably, miraculously, almost magically, he gets taken into a family of wealthy Memphis business people. Michael Orr is the kind of young man who at the age of 18 had never had a bed of his own. And you journey with him through his life story. Without uh, ruining some of the neatest parts of the story, it's common knowledge that in the 2009 NFL draft, Michael Orr was selected in the first round by the Baltimore Ravens. So incredible a story is his. The other is, uh, is a story that was voted the number one video clip of 2009, and it's the uh, story of Susan Boyle. Susan Boyle showed up in the British counterpart to uh, American Idol called Britain's Got Talent, and she auditioned. What makes her story kind of unique is she, she lived alone virtually. She's 47 years old. She's not very uh, socially uh, sophisticated, and yet she comes to this audition, and uh, what happens becomes one of the most uh, magical moments, so much so that millions of people have watched this clip. And uh, we're going to take a look at it now. It runs about five minutes, and this is Susan Boyle showing up and I'll particularly as we list, watch it, I want you to catch the expression of skepticism 
even doubt on the faces of the people as this woman comes to the stage. Hi, what's your name, darling? My name is Susan Boyle. Okay, uh, Susan, and where are you from? I am from Blackburn near Bathgate, West Lothian. It's a big town. It's a sort of collection of... It's a collection of... Uh, villages. I to think there. And how old are you, Susan? I am 47. <laughs> and that's just one side of me. Okay, what's the dream? I, I'm trying to be a professional singer. And why hasn't it worked out so far, Susan? I've never been given the chance before, but here's hoping it'll change. Okay, and who would you like to be as successful as? Elaine Page. Elaine Page. Like what are you going to sing tonight? I'm going to sing I Dreamed a Dream from the Miserables. Okay. Big song. <laughs> yeah? Yes.
Thank you very much, uh, Susan Piers. Without a doubt, that was the biggest surprise I have had in three years on this show. When you stood there with that cheeky grin and said, I, I want to be like Elaine Page, everyone was laughing at you. No one is laughing now. That was stunning. An incredible performance. Amazing. I'm reeling from shock about you two, but... I am so thrilled because I know that everybody was against you. I honestly think that we were all being very cynical and... I think that's the biggest wake-up call ever. And I just want to say that it was a complete privilege listening to that. It was instant I knew the minute you walked out <laughs> oh, on that stage that we were going to hear something extraordinary, and I was right. Not a lot of touch. Susan, you are a little tiger, aren't you? Oh, I don't know about that. You are? I don't know that. OK, moment of truth. Here's yes or no. The biggest yes I have ever given anybody. <laughs> Amanda? Yes, definitely. Susan Boyle, you can go back to the village with your head held high. It's three yeses. So what accounts for the joy that is in that clip? The joy that we feel even as we watch it. Is it not that all of us know that in our heart of hearts we aspire? And in this fallen world and as fallen people, we know the struggle of disappointment the fear that some dreams we carry will never come true. Some efforts we make will not succeed. And we sometimes wonder if it, is, if it is actually true that at our conception, God built into the DNA of our life something that will be significant both for us and for others. And when occasionally we stumble across something like this, that longing that we carry, a longing that sometimes we even suppress because we are so afraid of the crushing disappointment of one more unrequited effort, that longing, almost with a will of its own, begins to surface again. And we wonder if there is a dream there is a destiny, there is a purpose that God, our Creator, built into the DNA at our inception that deserves, even at this stage of life, deserves our respect and our honor and our attention. Out of the Christmas story, we're going to look at four quick little thoughts about our future and how to look at that future. And... Uh, what the Christmas story can tell us about that as we come to the end of this year of 2009. Let's look at the first one. Number one, often other people give us our future. 
Other people give us our future. You heard Susan Boyle say, I never really had a chance before. Other people give us our future. We read from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 and on. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. And Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't, you, don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name his name Jesus. Mary was a common person, like most of us. She would have had aspirations in her heart, but almost nothing would have prepared her for the invitation of the Lord to a future she could barely have dreamed of. And often when we read through Scripture, we find that it is God Himself that opens the door, that introduces us, that, that invites us into a future. And so we read about Joseph having a vision, and that vision gave him the inclination that God was going to use him to save his family and people in days of famine. Or we find Moses tending flocks in the backside of the desert and coming upon a burning bush, and there he meets God, who reminds him that his people are languishing in the bondages of Egypt and need to be released, and that he is the one to do it. Or Paul walking on the road, and there he's met with an angel of the Lord, and he's blinded, and God reminds him that the activities he's involved in of trying to destroy the church of Christ are actually against the purposes of God himself. And Paul is invited to a new future and a new reality. But it's often true that the Lord uses other people to be his mouthpiece, to be the person that invites us to a future. And so we find in Scripture that it was Moses who told the children of Israel, God's future for you is a future of freedom and not bondage. It was Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, that introduced Ruth to the future she would have where she ended up in part of the lineage of Jesus Christ himself. And it was Mordecai seeing the edict of the king to destroy the Israelites who went to Esther and said, Esther, you are in a position to appeal to the king. How do you know that you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Often it's other people that introduce us to the future the Lord has for us. The future that is part of what's created in us, part of the DNA we're created with at inception. One of the processes I go through every year in my life in the recent years is to remind myself of the people who gave me my future. The life I now live is a life full of challenge, and it's a life that, that I could not have dreamed of. But I owe certain people that life. When somebody gives us a future, we still have action to take. We have to own it and identify with it. We have to take authority over it. We have to act upon it. But often God uses people to 
to invite us to this future. In my life, it is my wife, Marcy. It is Brian Hopkins. It is Brian Donay, a businessman from Portland, Oregon, who's now dead. And yet, to live around the environment of his life meant that you were around one person if the entire world was a skeptic. You were around one person who believed God put you on this earth to do something that mattered. It is my friend Peter Holmes who lives in Tiki Island in Texas just off the coast of Galveston who sat with me in a Starbucks in Portland, Oregon and said he didn't think it unusual for somebody 54 years old to go back to school. It is Jeff Beaker, a businessman. The future I live was given to me by five people, all as mouthpieces of God. And often other people give us our future. That requires us to pay attention, to listen, to understand the ways of the Lord as he introduces us to something he's inviting us to. Let's look at number two. If you have a future, the past will take care of itself. If you have a future, the past will take care of itself. Matthew 1, 18, we read, This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her fiancé, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Joseph was preparing for his life. He was engaged to Mary. And then Mary became pregnant. He looked into his past, into what his culture taught him. And as he looked back into that culture, his culture said, you can't be a part of this. And then the Lord appeared and said, in fact, I am the one making these arrangements. And it's all right for you to marry Mary. We have a, what I'd call a, 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 a typical approach to improving our lives in America tends to be pathological. We tend to look at what's wrong, what went awry, what needs to be improved on, and then we focus on those things. But in fact, often what we, what we concentrate on, we conform to. What we concentrate on, we conform to. And so if I spend all my time focusing on my disappointment, focusing on my failure, focusing on my inadequacy, focusing on the character flaws that I have, of the personality shortcomings, focusing on a history that was not perfect, the more I live in that soup, the more I magnify it, the more I give it power, when in fact the Lord invites us to focus on the future he's inviting us to and to give that power and to magnify that 
and to give that energy. In fact, if we spend our time mostly in our past, it's usually being energized by fear or blame. By fear or blame. And fear and blame do not have power to create a future. They cannot create my future. And so rather than focusing on my past and focusing on my failures and focusing on my poor choices and becoming imprisoned by those, I begin to focus on my future and on the life God is building with me and what he's created in me and how that gets to be fleshed out. And that begins to take authority over Say, well, how does that work? Here's how it works. The Bible says good overcomes evil. Good has more power than evil. And the more I focus on the good, the more it is energized to conquer that which is deficient in my life. If you have a future, the past will take care of itself. So as we come to the end of this year, in a group this size, some of us are finishing the year never even getting close to some goals we set. Others of us in this room have had catastrophic failures. The kind of failures where we barely even dare name it. It has been so painful, so destructive, either, either from someone else or we caused it ourselves. But in the midst of that, we can decide we're going to spend all of our time fixing that, or we can allow the Lord to re-clarify for us what our future is, and we can focus on that. Number three, the arrival of Christ is the down payment to our future. Luke chapter 2 verse 8 said, that night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them, and they were terrified. But the angel reassured them. Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Theologians like to talk about the word kingdom. The kingdom started with the arrival of Christ. And there's two uh, aspects of kingdom they like to visit about. One is the kingdom has come. The second is it's not quite yet arrived. It's not fully formed as Christ intends it to be. And with the arrival at Christ. As we approach this Christmas season and we look into a new year, Jesus Christ is inviting us to live out the word Emmanuel, God with us, that wherever we find ourselves, in whatever circumstance we are in, to imagine that Christ himself is there with us in it, with all the resources and power that he carries having authority over all the world in which we live. And that because he's there in it with me, 
I do not journey it alone, and things are possible in it I could not have imagined. Let me give you an example of that. Even our death, however disappointing a news it might be to each of us, even our death does not carry the power to destroy the purposes of God in us. When God put into the heart of Jim Elliot to take the gospel to the rest of the world, Jim Elliot's passion for the Lord was so great that even today his journals, though this occurred decades ago, his journals are still in print. Jim Elliot got together with his friend Nate Saint and a couple others. They flew down to Ecuador, and before they could barely even begin to work with the Aka Indians, the Aka Indians, who were a warlike people, killed them near their plane on the shores of a river. You say, well, there, there it is. His dream, his dream to take the gospel to the world destroyed. But in fact, the media caught hold of the drama of that story. It spread throughout the entire United States. So powerful was the story of sacrifice of Jim Elliot that in the next 10 years in the United States, more people became missionaries to foreign cultures than had become missionaries in the previous 100 years. The passion and the dream of his life was not even, even as with the death of Christ, was not even stopped by death itself. The arrival of Christ is the down payment on the future and the purposefulness of your life. And finally, a fourth one. There will always be someone trying to steal your future. Matthew 2, 3, to 3 and 16. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, and he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and, uh, and under. No matter how significant your dream, how important your destiny, how fundamental it is to the DNA with which you were conceived, there are forces and people, even your past, can conspire to sabotage the future that the Lord has for you. Some people are so careless with their future, they, they leave it. They leave it sitting around like someone who left a suitcase on the shoulder of a highway for almost anybody to pick up, run over, rifle through, or destroy. And when Jesus, with the crowds gathering, said to his disciples, I have to go on to the next town, even with all the need that was there, he was saying to his disciples, I do not trifle with the future that my Father has given me. I don't treat it as careless. I don't put it on a shelf and think, well, I'm going to get back to it late later. I am loyal to it. I honor it. I give it the respect that it is due. 
because there are thieves abroad who would steal your future. Susan Boyle, future was almost stolen. The uproar around this event and this audition became so great that this woman, not accustomed to that kind of pressure, almost melted down and had had to actually withdraw for a while for fear of a nervous breakdown. Even Michael Orr, in Blindside, nearly lost his future because of the impact of old acquaintances in the old neighborhood and even the NCAA itself. Your future is always at risk. And so you must be loyal to it. And you must guard it. And you must honor it. Just as Jesus honored the future his father gave him. Now we started with a couple stories about current events. Let me end with a couple out of history. Just to illustrate this point. The first is the story of William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was born in the 18th century. He was a son of privilege. He entered into the House of Commons. He attended Cambridge University. He had wealth. But as he looked around the British Empire of his day, he realized that the empire was being built on the back of slavery. And he began to feel the heinous effects of slavery. And he disdained it. And he decided it was the purpose of his life to give himself to the abolition of slavery. And so he began. And every year he introduced bills into the House of Commons for the abolition of slavery. And one year, three years, five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty, twenty-five. For over thirty years, William Wilberforce battled against slavery. And in the midst of that clarion call that he had, even that appeared stolen. For not only what did he not did he often feel he wasn't getting anywhere, when the French Revolution broke out, people began to consider his attack on slavery an attack on the British culture and actually seditious and revolutionary. And even some of his friends began to pull away from him. There were days, both because of physical illness, the French Revolution, and the alienation of his own friends when he felt that his dream had been stolen away. William Wilberforce had two friends. One was William Pitt, who eventually became prime minister, and the other was Charles Fox, who was a prestigious member of the House of Commons. And they became his friends and his champions. And they were present. They were present. When William Wilberforce, sitting in the House of Commons, heard the result of a vote that showed that for the first time in the history of the British Empire, slavery had been outlawed. The Lord had given him a dream and a purpose. It was almost stolen away. And then others came and gave it back to him. And he accomplished the thing that he became known for. The second is Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was voted the most, the most influential statement, statesman of the 20th century, almost entirely because of the impact he had upon Britain and the world in the early years of the, of the World War II. 
A lot of people don't know that that impact was almost stolen by, from Churchill. The war started in 1939. But in the 10 years prior to that war, Churchill faced a series of adverse circumstances, any one of which might have leveled some of us. His wife had an affair. His daughter ran off with an American entertainer. His son was a wastrel and deep in debt, and so he suffered family struggles. He had invested almost all of his money in the American Stock Exchange, and so he lost his wealth in the crash of 1929. He was 50,000 pounds in debt and on verge of losing his own house. He became alienated from his closest friend. He was betrayed by his own political party and by Stanley Baldwin, the prime minister. He was set on the shelf, lied to repeatedly, and kept out of any position of power. And then he was attacked consistently by Neville Chamberlain, the next prime minister. He was fired from the newspaper in which he worked. He came to try to get work in the United States, went on a speaking tour, looked the wrong way in the street, and got run over by a taxi that took him months to recover from. He began to struggle, struggle with doubts and depression, feeling that his life had become meaningless and that he had no influence at all and there was hardly any reason to live. And even though he warned of the impending dangers of Nazis, the Nazis and Hitler, Neville Chamberlain returned with the Munich Declaration that both he and church, uh, he and Hitler had signed. Even public opinion turned against Churchill. He felt almost totally alone. And in the midst of these ten dark, dark years, where the influence of this man was almost stolen away, there arose what historians have called those troublesome young men. A group of young men in the House of Commons who believed that war was imminent and the savior of the world, the only one that could lead their country, was Churchill. These men, including Anthony Eden and Harold Macmillan, both who eventually became prime ministers, began to agitate in the House of Commons. So agitating were they, they became known as those troublesome young men. But these men, in the midst of Churchill's failure and depression and his feeling that his life had come to naught, these men became his champions and they gave him his future. And in this year, there's nobody in this room that doesn't have a future. Your future is not dependent upon its length. Jesus had only 36 months of ministry, but he accomplished, he says, all that his father had asked him to do. Your future is dependent upon an alliance between you and the Heavenly Father who created that future in your DNA and inception. And there could be no greater event in your life or mine than to end this year 
and to enter into the next one with a declaration in our heart of an alliance with Christ and an allegiance with Him who is more loyal to your purpose and your destiny than you and I could possibly fathom. For it is one of the things that he died for. Let's put our things aside as we finish up this morning. And thanks for being so attentive. Let's, would you just join me and bow your heads with me uh, for a few moments? And with our heads bowed, and none of us are looking around. And there might be some of us here today who, who've had a catastrophic year. A year that's almost stolen any, any idea we have of a future. Some of us may be in this room and we set out to accomplish some things this year and we've met with disappointment and reverse unexpected adversity. But right, right where we're at, we can declare to the Lord that we know that His arrival, as we reflect on Him at this Christmas season, that His arrival is a down payment on the future He has for us. And we could pray to Him right where you're seated. You could say something like, Lord, I have, I have experienced adversity this year. There's been some disappointment in my life. Some things I hope to get to. And with only a few days left in this year, I know it's just not going to happen. And I hear the siren whisper of the enemy of my soul telling me, this is just the way it is. Get used to it. Don't expect anything. But if Emmanuel means God with us, then Lord, I invite you into my heart today. I want to form an alliance with you because I know there is nobody more loyal to my purposes than you are. Lord, hear the call and cry of my heart to give me hope in this year. To let my life count for something. And to know that the purposes that you wove into the DNA of my spirit are alive. Help me be loyal to that. You could pray something just like that right where you're seated. We're just going to wait for a, a moment. If you'd like to talk to the Lord about that, would you do that right where you're at? And our heads are bowed and no one's looking around and and I just ask you, if you're praying right now, just to honor Jesus. The Christ who came into my world and yours. 
to make this kind of a difference and to give us a future. If you're praying right now just to honor him, would you just slip your hand up and put it down? Say, you know, I'm, I'm asking the Lord for help in this area. Yeah, up here in the front, and throughout the middle section, over here on the right, you bet. So we wait just a moment. Could I ask you one more thing? Would you like to invite the Lord to alert you when you could be someone that gives someone a future? That you could be the one to open the door? That you could be the Anthony Eden, the Harold McMillan, the William Pitt, the Charles Fox in someone's life to champion their purpose and invite them to their future? Would you like to declare that in your heart? Say, Lord, I, just in this year, for my wife, my husband, my children, a neighbor, a relative, a next-door friend, someone I work with, Lord, if I could be the one, if I could be the one to offer someone a future, I'd like to do that. Give me eyes to see it when it happens. Give me courage to do the thing that I need to do to participate in what you want to do in their lives. You could take a moment and just declare that to the Lord. And if you're saying that to the Lord, would you just slip your hand up just to honor him and say, I'd like to be that person. Yeah, from all over. You bet. Father, thank you for what Christmas brings to us and the reminder that you have not forgotten us, that our failures and our disappointments are not bigger than you are, and that whether this new year lasts a day or 365, in that span of time, because you are sovereign, You can give us the capacity to accomplish the purposes for which you have placed us on this earth. Thank you, Lord, that we aspire as part of being created in your image. For all these who slip their hands up, I pray that you'll rush grace to them, that they might be able to respond to you as you journey with them. In Jesus' name, amen.